0: So wherever you go today in the world, you'll find schools, synagogues, hospitals, senior homes, cemeteries with the name Montefiore. They're all over. Wherever you go, you find things with the name Montefiore. It's probably the name that is used by more Jewish organizations in more places around the world or as an individual. It's the individual after which more Jewish organizations around the world, and more diverse organizations in more diverse places, than any other individual. And um, it's all named for Sir Moses Montefiore, who was a very wealthy, successful Jew in the 19th century. Um, He lived in England. But he became not just very, he wasn't just very wealthy and influential, he became famous and made an impact because he used his power and his wealth to help his fellow Jews, to help non-Jews, and became a one-man force for good um, across the 19th century to the point that he's, he was widely recognized around the world as the greatest force for good in his day. He, for Jews suffering from Russia to Morocco to Jerusalem, he was the Jewish baron, the fellow who would fight for them in front of kings, in front of emperors, in front of local leaders who would fight on their behalf, who would build organizations to support Jewish communities, and not just for Jews, but for oppressed people around the world. He was a man living in Victorian, the Victorian British Empire, the British Empire at its height, in the mid-19th century, who represented, he was very well connected in within the British Empire, good friends with King Victoria, um, with Queen Victoria, sorry, he um, represented the wealth and power of the might of the British Empire while being an observant, pious Jew keeping Shabbos and Kosher and all of Jewish law, while at the same time being a baron who could go and mingle with the highest people of his time, with the greatest powers of his time. So not only did he help Jews, but he also stirred the Jewish imagination of this great powerful Jewish baron who's friends with all the kings and queens and yet keeps kosher when he goes to the big dinners and big celebrations and doesn't go on Shabbos and observes Shabbos and observes Jewish law and wears a big black yarmulke wherever he goes. So Moses Montefiore came from a prominent Sephardic family that had lived for generations in Livorno in Italy. His grandfather, was Moses Montefiore, was from Livorno, and he moved the family from Livorno to England um, in the uh, the 17th century, or in the um, 18th century, and uh, during a time when many Sephardic families were moving to England, which was then a rising power, there was a lot of opportunity there, they were a uh, banking family, and so they moved to London. Um, his father married. Uh, his father's name was Joseph Elias. was born in London, and he married um, Rachel Mokada, who was the daughter of a very prominent London-based Sfaradic businessman, Avra Abraham Mokada. At the time, the larger Jewish community in England, which was very small still, this is in the um, this is in the 1700s, the early 18th, the mid 18th century. At the time, the um, Sephardic. The most the the community in England is very small, but it is mostly Sephardic. Um, the larger of the community is the Sephardic community in England, which had come there first. So he was. So Moses is born to his parents in. Um, he was actually born, while his parents were on a trip to their family um, hometown Livorno in Italy. He was actually born in Livorno on October 28, 1784. And he went back, of course, with his parents not long afterwards to London. He was raised in Kennington, which is a suburb of London where a lot of Jews lived at the time. His parents went through some financial issues at a certain point. He was forced to leave school to help them out. But then he became a stockbroker, one of the first Jewish stockbrokers Working at the London Stock Exchange. In 1812, at the age of 28, he married, he crossed the aisle, which was somewhat rare back then, to marry an Ashkenazi girl, Judith Cohen or Yehudit Cohen, who was the daughter of Levy Barrett Cohen. Levy Barrett was the wealthiest Jew in England at the time, a great banker and financier. He was a Dutch Ashkenazi Jew. Um, And so um, uh, Moshe Montefiore married his daughter, um, Yehudit, and uh, of course that that was an immediate connection to great power and wealth. His wife's sister, Hannah, Hannah, married... Um, another very prominent Jew, Nathan Rothschild, the father of the London Rothschild House, the son of Mayor Amschel Rothschild, the father of the, all the Rothschilds based in Frankfurt. And so he went into business with his brother-in-law, who started a branch of the Rothschild Banking House in London, and became very, very successful. And he worked as a stockbroker for his brother, trading on behalf of the Rothschild Bank at the stock exchange. Later, he invested in gas lines, as gas was being laid in the early um, 19th century. He built a big insurance company. He invested heavily in rail. He got involved in banking, even for a time served as the governor of the Bank of Ireland. In 1827, he's now already um, 1827. He's now already in his mid 40s. Um, he and his wife have now been Yehudid, have been married. Judith have been married now for 15 years, and they had no children. And so they decided to travel to the Holy Land, the land of Israel, to pray at Rachel's tomb. Rachel is our mother, Rachel. Imenu, our mother Rachel. Who um, was also had no children for many years, and uh, God blessed her with two children, Joseph and Benjamin. So they decided to go to the land of Israel to pray at Rachel's tomb, something that was very, really unheard of back then for people to travel to the land of Israel just for a visit. It was extremely rare. Israel at the time had a small Jewish community. mostly Sephardic, but a sizable Ashkenazi community as well. Um, Most pilgrims that had essentially settled in Jerusalem, um, older people, people that lived off um, public funds funded by other communities in the diaspora, would help fund the Jews in Israel. But there were only a handful of towns um, each with maybe a couple thousand families, um, not a lot of Arabs or Christians living there either. It was fairly, fairly small community at the time, somewhat of a backwards place, um, so they went to Rachel's tomb, Rachel's tomb, Rachel's tomb did not have a building on it at the time, um, and they would later pay to donate, pay to build a building over Rachel's tomb, the building that still stands there today, um, and they went there to pray for children. They never did have children, but their impact was never, was really, um, uh, more pow- was extremely powerful regardless. They still made a great impact on this world, um. And while in Israel, they went through a really a religious. what he describes later in his own diary, uh, they both, both Moses and his wife, Judith, both left diaries. Um, and they both describe a religious transformation that they had while in Jerusalem uh, in um, 1827. And at that point, they decided to retire. They had done very well. They were able to afford to retire, though they were in their forties. Um, they decided to retire and spend the rest of their life dedicated to public good, dedicating their life to charity and to public good. Now seeing the poverty of the Jewish community in Israel and seeing how the land of Israel lay in ruins, most towns lay in ruins, there were very few villages, almost no agriculture to speak of, seeing how the land of Israel laid in ruins, they committed to investing in Israel, improving the lot of Jews who already lived in Israel and encouraging more Jews to move there. So Moshe and his wife Yehuda, or Moses and Judith, um, then in spent the rest of their very, very long lives, um, and they lived a very long life, both of them, um, Moses to over 100, and uh, they spent the rest of their lives dedicated towards the public good. And this is really when they became famous. So their first impact was really locally in the Jewish community. In 1814, At the young age of 30, as a young man, he became the treasurer of the Sephardic Synagogue in London. A couple years later, he became the president of the Sephardic Synagogue, and he held that position as president of the Sephardic Synagogue for decades. In 1835, still pretty young, uh, just 40 at the time, uh, sorry, just... um, Uh, just 50 at the time, he became president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, the central organization for British Jewry, and he held that position for almost 40 years. He was the leader and spokesman of all British Jews and really representing not just Jews in Britain, but Jews around the empire. In 1831, he purchased an estate in Ramsgate. Ramsgate was a um, was a um, beach town, a town on the on the coast, um, just a couple hours from London, not very far, and uh, by building, uh, by bought, purchasing an estate that made it, him landed, which gave him many more opportunities um, in 19th century Britain, if you owned land, if you owned an estate, um, and over there he... Um, uh, over there, he built a synagogue on his estate. He, in, uh, he invited Torah scholars to study there in the synagogue, had Jews sted- settle on the estate and built a Jewish community over there in Ramsgate. In 1837, already now a very prominent Jew and president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, he was appointed as the Sheriff of London. Sheriff of London was an honorary position that uh, various... British nobles would be appointed to um, as the Sheriff of London. It would be kind of a, uh, it was just an honor, it didn't have any real um, meaning to it. It was an an honorary position, but it showed the um, prestige that he was held um, in England. Um, That year, 1837, he had already been friends with Victoria, who would become the Queen of England um, and be Queen for... um, More than 50 years, more than 60 years, and um, he, um, and that year she knighted, after she ascended the throne, she knighted him, um, becoming the first Jew in uh, Britain to be knighted. A couple years later, in 1846, he was made a baron, and from then on he was called Sir, Sir Moses Montefiore. Together, but he campaigned um, for the Jewish community, together with his brother-in-law, Nathan Rothschild, and other acquaintances, other leaders in the Jewish community, they campaigned for full emancipation for Jews of England. Jews of England were banned from public office, from serving in the military, from many other, um, from various jobs, there were various limitations on what Jews could do in England. And so they campaigned for full emancipation and Parliament finally passed the law in 1846 allowing for, uh, for full emancipation of Jews, with only one exception. Jews could not be members of Parliament. You had to be Christian to be a member of Parliament. Um, the next year in 1847, his nephew, Leoniel Rothschild, was elected to Parliament in 1847, but could not take his seat because he was a Jew, and a Jew could not sit in Parliament. Um, it was only 10 years later that they changed the law, allowing Leonil to take his seat in the British Parliament. So in addition to his impact in Britain and working for British Jews, his real ma- and primary impact was in the land of Israel. Moses Montefiore traveled seven times to the land of Israel. It was almost unheard of then in the 19th century for anyone to travel to the land of Israel. He traveled seven times to the land of Israel. Traveling to Israel was not safe. Firstly traveling on a boat on the Mediterranean was not safe, there were still pirates there. There were Barbary pirates um, on the, um, from the North African coast, there were Greek pirates, there were pirates in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean was not safe Trave- tra- traveling by ship. It further wasn't safe um, to travel within the land of Israel. The land of Israel was racked by wars. Um, it was somewhat of a um, place, it was a part of the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottoman Empire didn't have very strong control over there, and it was at the mercy of local warlords, and uh, it really was not such a safe place. And yet he went time and again. The first time he went with his wife in nineteen in 1827, um, they were young and not yet famous. They then donated a lot of money to the Jewish community in Israel and did a lot to help the Jewish community in Israel. But after that, they were determined to go back. So the next time they went was in 1838. Israel in 1837 was hit by a devastating earthquake that destroyed. Um, It was centered near Safad Tzfat, which is on a very steep mountainside. All the homes in Tzfat, without exception, were totally destroyed in this earthquake. Uh, Many, many people died. Um, Tzfat was one of the larger Jewish communities in Israel at the time. Um, Throughout Israel, people died and homes were destroyed and um, they really needed a lot of help. And so, um, Moses and his wife, wife Judith raised a lot of money from British Jews and then came to Israel where they distributed money to help Jews and non-Jews rebuild their homes, rebuild their towns, rebuild infrastructure um, following the earthquake. They didn't only help um, the Jews, they gave money to Christian leaders, they gave money to Muslim leaders to help non-Jews as well. Now wherever they came, they were treated like royalty. Firstly, they were given out money and they were giving out a lot of money. So everyone appreciated it, the local rulers, the mayors of the towns, um, you know, the local uh, governors, everyone appreciated people coming with large amounts of money, handing out money. They were also very well respected and connected British Jews. Britain at the time was the great empire. Nobody, you know, nobody did anything to a British noble Brit, uh, British, British leaders or British um, citizens were treated like royalty just because they were British. You didn't want to start up with the British Empire. Especially, they came with letters of recommendation from ministers, from leaders of Britain. They had the... They, wherever they went, they were accompanied by the British ambassador. They went to, London, they went to England, they, they went to Egypt. They stayed at the British Embassy in Egypt, wherever they went. Or they stayed at the Brit- with the British consuls. And um, they had members of the embassy going around with them. And they didn't just travel themselves. Remember, in those days, you couldn't... Um, in those days, you could travel alone, but it was pretty dangerous. People would travel as part of caravans. There were no trains yet in those days, you know, to travel by train. Um, And when they traveled, they took boats, usually to Alexandria, um, sometimes to um, Beirut. And uh, from there, they would go on by horse, but they would go with a whole, when every time they traveled, they traveled with a whole entourage, and they describe it in their diaries. Um, They traveled with soldiers to protect them, private, you know, hired security. To protect them from bandits from that were roaming the countryside. Um, they had servants and had aides helping them, and uh, they had a you know, entourage of fifty, hundred people, people carrying their tents and chefs to make food for them. And so they traveled as kind of a very large group. So as you can imagine a prominent group like this traveling, you know, all on horseback, um, you know, with private security, wherever they came in this Israel, which at the time was really backwards, a backwater place, um, they were treated with very, very great respect. And um, wherever they came, they um, interceded on behalf of the Jews, Jews often needed permission to build certain things um, or had unfair taxes and the like, and they would ask the local rulers and of course their requests were always immediately granted, sometimes reversed after they left, but their requests were always immediately granted. They returned to Israel a third time ten years later in 1849. Um, Again, with money raised from British Jews, with the goal of distributing to the Jews in Israel and to help the Jews of Israel. In 1854, Judah Turo was the wealthiest Jew in the United States at the time. His name was Judah Turo, he was originally from Rhode Island, but he, um, he made his money down in the south and um, he lived most of his life in New Orleans um, and became very, very successful. And um, he, When he died, he left all of his money to charity. He left a lot of money to charity, um, including he left money to every single Jewish community in the United States. But he also left $50,000 This is 1854, so you're talking about worth, in today's dollars, tens of millions of dollars, if not more, um, for the Jews of Israel to build new settlements in the land of Israel. And he designated Moses Montefiore, who was already by now well-known worldwide as the man who supported the land of Israel, who raised money for the land of Israel and helped the Jews in Israel, and so he designated him as the man who would distribute the funds. So he traveled twice to do that, first right afterwards in 1855, where he bought land to build an agricultural settlement in Jaffa. Jaffa. Um, That settlement was not built um, at the time, it it wasn't until decades later that it was actually built. But his main goal was to expand the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the largest city in Israel, and it was all it was surrounded by walls that had been built a couple hundred years earlier by the Ottomans, and it was extremely crowded. It was overcrowded. Um, there were, at the time, he did a couple censuses at the time, and um, at that time, I think there were about fifty thousand Jews, fifty thousand people living in Israel, about half of Jews half non-Jews, living in Jerusalem, and it was a very small area, and it was very, very crowded. And so his goal was to build outside, to build towns outside of the walls. Um, He returned in 1857 to lay the cornerstone of a new neighborhood outside of Jerusalem. Eventually, that neighborhood would be called Yemin Moshe. Um, you mean Moshe is still a neighborhood today, just outside of the walls, there's a famous windmill over there that he built later in order to help Jews support themselves, um, it's just outside the um, Jaffa Gate, just south of the Jaffa Gate, um, it's still there today. Uh, today if you go to Jerusalem there are many neighborhoods, Kiryat Moshe, and many neighborhoods with the name Moshe, all named after Moses Montefiore because of what he did. So he continued traveling. Um, His wife died in 1862, and he traveled again himself in 1866. And then for the final time, he was now 91 years old. He traveled in 1875 at the age of 91 for the final time to Israel. And each time he built homes, he built neighborhoods, expanding Jerusalem until the city outside the walls of the old city became larger, the new city became larger than the old city. He built job training centers to allow young people to find jobs, started businesses, he started a printing press in Jerusalem, other businesses tried to just tried, tried to start agricultural settlements. They would only really, really start just before his death, thanks to others who would build um, agricultural settlements. He also had a very strong impression on the local rulers. So whenever the Jews in Israel needed anything, they would turn to England, to Moses Montefiore. They knew that if he would write a letter to the local rulers, it would be listened to. They took him very seriously. Of course, every time he came, he not only gave money to the local Jewish community and Christians and Muslims as well, he also gave money to local rulers as well. He knew how to pay them off. And he gave them significant amounts of money to local rulers for whatever projects it was. But by buying them off, um, he was able to buy better treatment for Jews as well. Any questions? So, not only while he was primarily famous for his impact in Israel, not only was he impactful in expanding the community in Jerusalem, in Israel, the community in Israel during his lifetime, and during the 60 years or 50 years or so that he was involved in building the land of Israel, um, he saw the Jewish community explode, Um, probably triple or quadruple during that period. He saw them build, um, become more financially stable, though not entirely, begin to build businesses, um, begin to build infrastructure in the land of Israel. After his death, it would develop quite a lot further, but he really became synonymous with the land of Israel. Um, But in addition to that, he didn't just help Jews in Israel. He helped Jews anywhere in the world where he felt there was a need. He probably became most famous for his work encountering countering the blood libel in Damascus. In 1840, Syria um, and Israel at the time were under the control of Mohammed Ali. Mohammed Ali was a Albanian Turkish general who had been appointed um, to lead the Turkish legions in Egypt and he essentially seized power, made himself king of Egypt, and uh, essentially rebelled against the Ottomans, um, and went to war against the Ottomans, Um, and Egypt for a while was independent, and for a while he captured Israel and Syria, and so he controlled Damascus. Now the Jews of Damascus, Damascus and really that whole area had a Muslim majority, but significant Jewish and Christian minorities. And while both Jews and Christians suffered under Islamic rule, um, throughout the Ottoman Empire there was a lot of friction between Christians and Jews. Um, And there was particularly a lot of anti-Semitism, and there was more anti-Semitism coming in that region from Christians than from Muslims. So in 1840, there was a Catholic priest um, by the name of Father Thomas who died, who was who disappeared, and the Christians in Damascus accused the Jews of killing him to use his blood for ritual purposes. And so, seven Jewish leaders of Damascus were arrested and tortured, and some of them, under torture, admitted to committing the crime. And so, Moses Mont, and this became this the. Jews of Damascus, the, the story um, kind of got out and um, got into the papers around the world. And Moses Montefiore, together with the French Jewish statesman, um, Aldofe Cremieux, um, traveled to Damascus uh, in, uh, in order to try to help these prisoners. First they tried to intercede uh, with the local Damascus authorities, somewhat unsuccessfully. And then they went to Egypt, demanding that Muhammad Ali the king of Egypt at the time, um, free these prisoners. He, under pressure, Muhammad Ali agreed. Remember, they're representing France and England, um, Very both respected individuals in France and England, and so um, he felt the pressure, and he agreed to free the prisoners, although he refused to drop the charges against them. He agreed to at least free them. Um, Later, the Ottomans, later that year, the Ottomans gained control back of Damascus and Israel. And um, Montefiore then traveled, Moses Montefiore then traveled to Constantinople, where he met with the sultan, who agreed to issue an edict denouncing the blood libel and to drop all charges against the Jews. Um, the story of Moses Montefiore's travel to Damascus became, and to England and following him around became the story and uh, was reported very, very widely all across Europe, and uh, it made him very, very famous, his efforts to end the blood libel and to free the Jews and his success in doing so, and he really from that story in 1840 became known as the Jewish savior around the world, around particularly around Europe. Now in 1846, the Tsar, who led the Russian Empire, the Russian Empire had at the time the largest Jewish community in the world, by far, some 5 million Jews, or close to it, a couple million Jews lived in, later it would be 5 million, at that time it was a couple million Jews lived in the Russian Empire, in a very small area of the Russian Empire called the Pale of Settlement, they were only allowed to live in a limited area, And the Jews were very, very poor, because they were very limited where they could live, what jobs they could do, they couldn't go to universities, they were extremely limited, and therefore extremely, extremely poor. Um, And so the Tsar decided that he was going to assimilate all the Jews of Russia and make them all Christian, get them to convert to Christianity, and make them all Russian. And so he decided... That since he knew that Moses Montefiore was widely respected by all Jews as the great leader and the great Jewish Baron and he knew that Moses Montefiore was a very worldly man. He was a very modern man, very wealthy man and successful. He was certain that if he could bring him to Russia and he wanted to help Jews around the world, he could convince Moses Montefiore that the only way To for Jews, if Russia to be emancipated, would be for them all to convert to Christianity or at least um, drop um, their Jewish communities and become and assimilate into Russian society. And then, if Moses Montefiore supports it, then all the Jews will follow his lead. Um, Anyway, Moses Montefiore came to St. Petersburg. Um, on um, the Tsar's um, invitation. And um, he traveled around. He said he needs to see the towns and villages. He wants to see the Jewish community and traveled around various towns and villages across the Jewish community um, of Russia. And then he met with the leadership in St. Petersburg and he told them very clearly that the Jews are poor and struggling because of pogroms, government incited and government sponsored pogroms that would attack their businesses and kill Jews. They were poor because of anti-Jewish laws of what Jews were allowed to do. They were poor because they couldn't move outside the Pale of Settlement. And if he wanted to free Jews, the solution was not to, if he wanted to solve the Jewish problem, the solution was not to assimilate them, but the solution was to emancipate them, give them freedoms, as had been done in Western Europe by now. Emancipate them. Anyway, the Russian um, government was not very supportive of that idea. Emancipating Jews, having proud Jewish Jews who were proud of their Judaism as free members of the country and the society was something that they never dreamed um, you know, was, could be done and didn't, um, and would not, you know, didn't consider doing at all. A couple years later, 1858, the Inquisitor in Bologna, Italy, um, was told by a Christian woman called Anna Morisi on her deathbed that years earlier she had secretly baptized a Jewish child in the home where she worked as a maid. And this child's name was Ed- uh, uh, Eduardo Mortara, Mart- uh, and so the Inquisitor of Bologna had that child kidnapped and brought to the church to be raised as a Christian because he had been baptized, supposedly. And the community in Bologna was very, very upset about it. And word got out pretty quickly. And it became It caused an uproar across Europe. The Pope, Pius IX... Um, supported the um, Christians in um, Bologna and even invited the boy to Rome to be raised as um, he would be his sponsor and be raised as his own child. And um, it really caused an uproar across Europe. This one story, it happens every once in a while in history where there are particular incidents that make huge, one one single minor incident that makes a huge change across Europe. Uh, It made a huge impact on Europe. Um, It led to um, many, um, it led to many, many changes across Europe um, and an anti, very strong anti-Catholic movement. It was the, um, probably the catalyst that led to the very strong anti-Catholic movement in this country. At the same time, it was in all the newspapers, headlines here. It was a very, very big deal here in the United States where there was already friction between Protestants and Catholics as Italians and Irish were coming in very large numbers then in the 1850s. And so um, it was a very, it was a small incident, but it made an impact around the world. Um, maybe one day we could do this. Many books are written, on it. we could do a class on it maybe one day. So, that year, so, um, Moses Montefiore Traveled as the savior of Jews traveled to Rome to plead Martara's case before the Pope the Pope did grant him an audience He really didn't have a choice because he was you couldn't say no to Moses Montefiore, but he was not successful. He did not Succeed in getting the boy freed and indeed the boy was raised as Christian and did later become a priest and live the rest of his life as Christian in 1864 He heard that Moroccan Jews were facing a lot of persecution. He traveled to Morocco, supporting the Jews over there. In 1867, pogroms broke out across Romania And um, he traveled to Romania at the time to uh, support the Jews over there, to plead with the Romanian government to help the Jews. In 1872, he went back to Russia again to meet the Tsar to insist on better treatments of Jews in the Russian Empire. So wherever he came, Jews saw him as a hero, as a savior, a man who could walk into any palace of any king or queen, any emperor, um, and would be invited in, treated as royalty. He was a representative of the British Empire with connections in the highest places in Great Britain, Um, a man who could raise huge sums of money to support Jewish communities. Um, He was a hero, a savior, a man that could speak up on their behalf. When many Jews were poor, many Jews were suffering persecution, he was able to speak up on their behalf to leaders, local leaders, to um, uh, national leaders, um, to anyone, he could speak on their behalf. He could pay people off. He could give money to support Jewish communities, and he did all over Europe and all uh, real and Israel um, and North Africa and in many places. He gave money to support Jewish communities. They saw him as a hero and savior. And they also saw him, as I mentioned earlier, as this British baron, this very wealthy British baron, who walked around as an aristocrat, um, accompanied by a large entourage and security, um, dressed like an aristocrat, but with a big black yarmulke on his head, who kept kosher wherever he went, went to big dinners, but kept kosher, and kept Shabbos and came to Shul on Shabbos together with his whole entourage and his personal security detail. They would all go to Shul on Shabbos wherever they went. He didn't have a security detail in England, but when he traveled to places that weren't so safe, he did. And so he was this great savior of Jews in trouble around the world. And it wasn't only Jews that he was a savior of, and he wasn't only famous among Jews. He was probably one of the most famous men of his day in England and the British Empire, and he was probably one of the most famous men of his day in Europe. He was a force for good in general. He helped non-Jews. He fought, for, he fought against slavery. He fought for, to ban slavery in the British Empire. When the British, when the British Parliament banned slavery in 1836 across the British Empire, as part of the law, the British government purchased all slaves in the British Empire. To finance that purpose, Moshe Montefiore, together with his brother-in-law Nathan Rothschild, provided the 20 million pound loan to the British government in order to finance the purchase of all slaves in the British Empire from their slave owners. Essentially, so the slave owners would not rebel or um, protest or fight against this law. Um, He, when he was in Egypt, he pressured, where in Egypt slavery was very prevalent, um, and he uh, pressured Muhammad Ali to end slavery in Egypt. Wherever he went, he didn't only ask for better treatment of Jews, but Christians as well. In 1860, he was very concerned about Jews in the Holy Land and the areas around the Holy Land. In 1860, there was a battle, remember at the time um, Israel-Syria was part of the Ottoman Empire but there was only limited control of the Empire over that region and it was mostly in the hands of warlords and um, there was a battle between Druze warlords and Christian warlords in Syria and it resulted in um, massacres, massacres of thousands of Christians across Syria, across southern Syria and so at the time Um, Moshe Montefiore raised 30,000 pounds in England from the Jewish and Christian community in England to help Christians in Syria. Now these were the same Christians that had rioted in the Jewish quarter in 1840 um, and were responsible for that blood libel, but he raised huge amounts of money to help them rebuild their homes, rebuild their businesses after they themselves suffered the same fate. In Morocco, he didn't only help the Jewish minority, but he also worked to help the persecuted Christian minority. Every time wherever he went, he not only gave money to the Jewish community, he helped Christians, Muslims, wherever he went. So he wasn't just seen throughout the world as a Jewish philanthropist. He was a (coughs) philanthropist who gave huge amounts of money himself, of his own money, to charity. Um, Huge amounts of his the Rothschilds family, money that he got to charity, but he raised money from Jews, from Christians, from evangelicals, from Catholics. He raised money from, here in, from people in the United States, although he never visited here, but he was well known here. People sent him money. He raised money from everywhere to help downtrodden people around Europe, the Middle East, um, helping people everywhere. He was known as a powerful force for good Um, The British were very, very proud of him. He was widely respected in Britain as this great activist and force for good um, who helped people everywhere and anywhere, um, both in using political pressure um, as well as activism, as well as money, um, which went a very long way and still goes a very long way today um, in helping people. In 1884, Moshe Montefiore turned 100. It was also rare for people back then to live that long. He turned 100. His 100th birthday was celebrated across England, noted in Parliament, celebrated by the Queen, Queen Victoria, who he had been close with, celebrated across England. The front pages of all the newspapers marked his 100th birthday, but it wasn't only England. Across Europe, all leaders in Europe, sent him well wishes and gifts for his 100th birthday. All the Jewish communities in Europe and Israel and the Middle East sent him gifts and wishes for his birthday. Um, It was something that was celebrated across Europe and the Middle East. He was one of the most famous people of his day, definitely the most famous person known as a force for good, as a force for charity, for philanthropy. He turned 100, very rare itself back then, and it was really something that was celebrated everywhere. Um, people, diaries from that time, from 1884, from all sorts of different communities and different places, all men tend to mention, you know, commu- their co- how their community marked his birthday, doing prayers for him, or whatever they would have done, or you know, sending a tribute to him, or whatever they did to celebrate his birthday, whether in Russia, whether in Romania, whether in Morocco, whether in Israel, wherever it was, they were celebrating his birthday. It was a very, very big event. He tried to t- to tame it down. They made a um, they made a committee of um, some of the most important people in Britain um, to a year before to plan his hundredth birthday. And uh, he asked them to shut down the committee because he felt they were overdoing it a little bit. Um, but he, uh, he died on the 16th of Av, which would have been a week ago, um, July 28th in 1885, just before his 101st birthday. His death was mourned by everyone around the world. Um, he didn't have any children, so he, le- he left his estate in Ramsgate as a place of Torah study with a yeshiva to train rabbis. Um, It remained till the 1940s when it was closed, when Jews left in Ramsgate. He also left hundreds of thousands of pounds for the Jewish community and for the poor of Israel. But most of all, he left this legacy of this Jewish baron who brought pride and freedom to Jewish people. He was the first individual in modern times the first modern businessman to use their wealth and connections to become a force for good he we can really call him the father of modern philanthropy and pub- and public advocacy he inspired many people in his day to take up the mantle of philanthropy of leaving their money towards uh, for um, in, uh, for public good, of donating their fortune, donating big um, parts of their fortune for public good, um, of wealthy people using their wealth and power to advocate for those in need, to advocate for causes. He was the first to do it in modern times. He was starting in the 1820s when nobody was doing it. He was not just the first, he was... Definitely, in the 19th century, the most prominent and famous individual doing it, and de- most influential individual um, philanthropist of his day, without a doubt. And um, he inspired so many after him, and really all philanthropy that we have today, as we know modern philanthropy, people who have been successful and use their success to then um, uh, to then uh, to then whether giving money, leaving their money for good causes, um, helping, encouraging other wealthy people to leave their money for causes, raising money for good and the like, really he was the father of modern philanthropy and he left that legacy behind. He was for Jews the father of the modern settlement in the state of Israel. He really saw it grow from a backwater, um, backwards place to somewhat of a strong settlement he didn't live to see the modern yeshuv that would only begin in the 1880s right before his death. Um, and so he didn't really live to see, let alone the modern state of Israel, but he certainly would be proud of what it is, what it became today. Um, so he's the father definitely of modern Israel um, and modern, the modern settlement in Israel, but he's also really the father of, a, of philanthropy and, called, and being an advocate for good in modern times.